I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Eve Grabman, her new book is Challenging Pregnancy, A Journey Through the Politics and Science of Healthcare in America. Recounting her stranger-than-fiction paradox of being a prisoner in her own body when her health and life became endangered by a rare and complex high-risk pregnancy, Genevieve Grabman had the exact education, connections, and resources to get the help she needed. However, the politics of the American healthcare system repeatedly blocked her as if in an Orwellian dystopia. She was pregnant with identical twins whose circulatory systems were connected in a rare condition called twin-to-twin transfusion, transfusion syndrome. She was barred from taking every step necessary to save not only her baby's lives, but her own. Ultimately, national anti-abortion politics, not medicine or her own choices, determine the outcome of Grabman's pregnancy. She's a 2022 District of Columbia Commission on the Arts and Humanities Fellow. She also a, has a master's degree in public health from Johns Hopkins University and a Juris Doctor from Georgetown University. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Genevieve. Thank you so much, Catherine, for having me. I'm really excited to be here and for this opportunity. Well, I, my first question is, Genevieve, uh, why write this book? Why write it now? And this is a three-part question. And why do we need to know about your experience in particular? How's that? Well, yeah, that is a three-part question. The timing, I would say, is the most important part. And I am the least important part of that question. Um, my, my story in particular shouldn't matter so much. But the timing of a story about how pregnancies are complicated matters, how healthcare and healthcare access is a very important matter, and what the Supreme Court is poised to decide about both pregnancy and healthcare access is an extremely important matter now. As you and your listeners certainly know, uh, our Supreme Court is about to decide on the fate of of Roe v. Wade, which has been long the... um, protection that we have had in the United States to um, choose to terminate or continue a pregnancy. And that, you know, not everyone gets pregnant, right? Not everyone wants to have kids. Men don't get pregnant. Um, Cisgender men don't get pregnant. And so men um, don't get pregnant. But I have to say one of the things that, and it does bother me, that I hear particularly in younger couples is we are pregnant. And I'm always kind of questioning we are pregnant is really not <laughs> true. Only one person can get pregnant. We are parents. Yes, that's true, but not we are pregnant. Anyway, okay, so we've established I, I hear you loud and clear on that one, and I think that's kind of, I, I hear you, and I think that's sort of where we started to go wrong a little bit on this conversation, on the conversation around reproductive health and reproductive health access and maternal health access in this country. Because it started to be that I don't think that the decision makers around um, access to the health care that pregnant people need to save their own lives and to save wanted pregnancies, I don't think the decisions being made um, about those concerns are being made by people who have been pregnant. 
And that is an important distinction to make because if you have ever been pregnant, you know that you are dancing on a knife's edge and something can go wrong in an instant. And in that instantaneous moment, if and when something goes wrong, you need immediate help. And what you do not have time for is to have a debate or certainly have a decision made in a capital somewhere far away by people who have no knowledge of your particular circumstance. And that is why, Catherine, it is so important to ask ourselves and to have this conversation now, is this what we as Americans, is this what we intend? Do we intend to say to have women in the situation where I was, and pregnant people in the situation where I was, where I had to wait until the end of my pregnancy to find out who would survive? Who would come out of that pregnancy? Would it be no people? Would it be one person? Would it be two people? Or would it be three people because I was pregnant with twins? And I did not know the answer to that until until I gave birth. And the waiting of months and months of trying to find out who would survive and what the repercussions for my existing family would be, that wait is a torture. And I wonder, are we asking that of our people? Your story when you found out you're pregnant. Let's take it, you know, just down to the very beginning. Like you, you find out you're pregnant and then pregnant. Did you know? Okay, let's. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I had a, I had a already a baby at home. I was nursing him and, um, decided to have another baby. So got pregnant and, um, nothing much seemed to be happening with that pregnancy. And I went into the doctor and the doctor said, Oh, this one's not going to stick. It's um, likely a blighted ovum, which is just, you know, a fertilized egg, didn't implant properly, not going to grow. So I scheduled um, uh, a DNC, which is a procedure to just clean that that um, blighted ovum out and to try again later. So I uh, showed up for the, at about, I don't know, eight weeks into it to the doctor's office to get that blighted ovum taken out before it made me very sick and, you know, possibly could have gotten infected or something. And the doctor's sitting there scanning me and she says, oh, oh, wait, wait, oh, um, whoops. <laughs> Never something you want to hear. Uh, she says, oh, no, there's two in there. And I sat straight up and Catherine, I said something really quite foul that I will not repeat on the air. And I was just like, you have to be kidding me. Like, what do you mean? And um, then had to apologize for my poor, you know, gynecologist. And in, in fact, she says, well, no, there are two, but something doesn't look right. And so from that, from eight weeks in, I knew that something wasn't right. And indeed, there wasn't something right because the, I was pregnant with identical twins. And those identical twins had um, their sacks of waters, their amniotic sacks, uh, basically fused. And the blood vessels from the twins um, also conjoined across the amniotic sac, such that one baby's heart was pumping all his blood to the next fetus. And so I had like this one teeny tiny fetus that wasn't growing, was pumping away all his blood to his twin, which was like ballooning with blood. His heart was failing under the pressure and he was producing all this amniotic fluid. So I have like this bulging, distorted belly of amniotic fluid. And so as you can imagine, 
that situation is not good for, for anybody, not the person carrying the pregnancy and certainly not the developing fetuses. And uh, my book is about, you know, it's structured around, you know, what, what does one do in that situation? But it's, it's broadly, more broadly, a conversation and an exploration of the laws and restrictions around healthcare and particularly reproductive and maternal healthcare in the United States as a way of bringing forward these, those issues at this moment. All right. Let's talk about those laws. What were the restrictions that you had to undergo during this whole pregnancy? As you said, you didn't even know what the outcome could or would be until you know, nine months later. So what were those or what are those laws? Um, so first is that, um, and so I'll say that uh, the laws have become even more restrictive uh, since I was pregnant. Um the, the most basic one is the time during which you could uh, terminate a pregnancy. Many uh, states um, then, and this was six years ago, and now even more states restrict the time when you can terminate a non-viable pregnancy. And I really want to underscore that term, non-viable, because if the pregnancy is viable, meaning, you know, there's a living being and you... You don't terminate the pregnancy. You have an induced premature birth. But the restrictions that states are setting up and did set up are around non-viable pregnancies and when you can terminate them. My doctors told me at 21 weeks that the most certain outcome that would preserve my health would be that I terminate the entire pregnancy because nothing was going well with the pregnancy. No, the fetuses were not doing well, I was not doing well, and it was advised that I should terminate the pregnancy. However, um, the only place, because I had waited until that long, and the doctors had waited until that long to, tell, to give me that advice, the only place where I could terminate the pregnancy at that time was uh, one of very few late-term um, uh, termination facilities that exist in the United States. There are very few doctors that exist that have the training to be able to terminate a later-term pregnancy, again, of, a of non-viable fetuses. And the reason that the doctors do not have training and that there are so few options for people who are in situations like mine has to do with anti-abortion politics and the laws that we've set up in our country. If I could provide another example, another example is that um, I was... Uh, I was ultimately discharged from a number of different hospitals where I had sought care because those hospitals determined that um, it was too risky to provide me the fetal surgery that, I, that, that my doctors had advised that I get and that I had requested to try to separate my twins and to save the pregnancy. And the, uh, the hospital said, well, what will likely happen is that you'll save one twin, but you will terminate the other one, and that's an abortion, and we can't agree to let you have that procedure. That's not due to, because this was earlier in the pregnancy, that, wasn't, that determination that was not based because of any legal restrictions, that, was made, uh, that determination was made based on bias and based on a fear that the hospitals would be seen as allowing people to terminate or to procure abortion. And the last example is that I was discharged from those hospitals to a Catholic hospital. And so Catholic hospitals, which now provide 
the majority of healthcare available in large swaths of America, especially rural America, do not permit a number of, of um, life-saving options for, for pregnant people, including pregnancy termination. They also don't permit, for example, intervention in atopic pregnancies. They don't, they don't permit um, sterilizations in other, in other procedures. So I want to get back I'm to that. So you're couple. saying maybe this is, yeah. you're saying in an ectopic pregnancy, they won't, they, which you can die from, obviously. What, um, yeah. You, what, they send you home to uh, explain that they, to me. They attempt, they attempt to transfer you to another hospital who will, that will intervene. But where there are no transfers possible, I, I don't know what would happen. I'll tell you what happened to me. Uh, there, uh, clearly, I could not terminate my pregnancy at a Catholic hospital. So my doctor took me in the hallway whispered in my ear, you know, I think you should consider terminating that pregnancy, but officially I can't tell you this because of where we are. So, and you can't get it done here, but I can give you the name and address of a place where you could get this done and we'll try to help you in any way possible, but unofficially. And so So, it was left to me to figure it out. And I think, as I said in the beginning, here you are, a, a lawyer, well-educated, well-informed. You have all of the uh, all of the necessary intellectual tools and all the other stuff that goes along with it. And you're having to negotiate in the midst of whether you could die. Uh, your care, whispering to the doctor in the hallway where you can get medical care. Is that it? <laughs> or that that is it. I, I would also, though, I'm mean, not to overstate my case. I was not imminently dying. Like I was not, you know, about bleeding out right at that second. There was concern though, that at any moment that I could have the the pressure because of all this amniotic fluid could become so great that I would either go into preterm labor or I could um, stroke or have a heart attack because of my blood pressure, or I could um, hemorrhage. And so the the, the uh, risks were not immediate, but the risks were substantial um, as the pregnancy continued to me. The risks were absolutely immediate to the fetuses because they simply were not developing well. And so the, the fear was that if I let the pregnancy continue, I would give birth um, the, the thought was I would probably give birth to one live baby. The other one would die. And then that live baby wouldn't survive for long um, and would um, suffer and die after a couple of days or would be severely mentally compromised and live a life um, of great compromise. So given and that... so... Gi- sorry? I was going to say, given that and given your experience so far as you were describing it to us... What would be your vision for women, for all pregnant women? Um, how should we be treated? How should we be treated by the, the political and the medical system? What's, what's another direction to go in besides the experience that you're describing and that you describe in your book, obviously? So there is another way, Catherine. And the other way is to let doctors do their jobs to trust pregnant people that, especially, you know, pregnant parents 
I already had a kid. My primary duty was to my existing child, whom I was still nursing, um, and to provide him a life, a good life, and sustenance, and a parent, a mother. So to let doctors do their job, to trust pregnant people, to trust women, and ultimately to get politicians who haven't the foggiest clue. They don't have the foggiest clue. They're trying to write legislation that has no basis in science, no basis in fetal development, certainly no basis in maternal health. Um, get them out of, of healthcare, of, of putting up restrictions that only result in um, being, failing to be able to save wanted pregnancies. Politicians claim they're motivated by a desire to save uh, babies, to, to save developing fetuses. But what they're not understanding is that the flip side of destruction is creation. The same tools that you can use to terminate a pregnancy, you can use to save it. And if you are restricting, and, and this is what the laws say, even down to the tools that you might use, the words that you might say, um, what doctors can, how doctors can and cannot be trained, if we're restricting those, ultimately we are draining the pool of the people and the resources we need to save wanted pregnancies. And I cannot imagine that that is truly the intention of, of Americans. Do you think what's happened in terms of attitude is that we have this sort of attitude, which really is just an attitude, but it's not based in reality, that a pregnancy is sort of a, you know, a simple feat of, of nature, that we don't really understand the risks that we are not that a pregnant person is at risk, even in a health, even in a pregnancy, you know, that supposedly a, a, a full-term easy pregnancy, but you're, you're putting your body at risk. You're putting yourself at risk. You're putting your family, as you're describing your family at risk. If you have other children at home and you die, right. or you get really I, sick or, you know, all that sort yeah, of, you I, know, yeah, go ahead. I'm 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 struck. I'm really struck by the fact that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on our Supreme Court before she passed away was the only person um, on the Supreme Court that had borne a pregnancy, and now her replacement, um, Justice Barrett, it is the only person on the court on the Supreme Court who has borne a pregnancy. And so I know that um, Justice Ginsburg would speak eloquently about her own experiences of being pregnant and being a parent, being a mother, and knowing what that was like. And I know that in this um, case that is soon to be decided, that is frankly going to undo Roe v. Wade. I was struck in the oral argument by in the Supreme Court how Justice Barrett, for all the fact that she is that she's a mother many times over of both biological and adopted children, she suggested that adoption would solve concerns around the risk of pregnancy and didn't seem really to appreciate the, ex the experience of, yes, the fact that for many people who get pregnant, their lives are on the line, their health is on the line, the outcome is not guaranteed, and the results of that outcome have absolute dramatic effects on existing live children who depend on that pregnant parent. I think that that was probably the one that stood out 
in terms of all of the testimony, that was uh, to me was um, somewhat appalling to talk about adoption as uh, taking care of the problem or the issue. That was just, you know, if you don't want to have the baby, then right. just it, put it up for adoption. Well, what about the, the pregnancy itself? It, but yeah. It forgot the pregnancy itself, right? And it also, I thought, was rather contemptuous towards both <laughs> adoptees and and adoptive parents. I, I was very surprised by that statement by Justice um, Barrett. But, um, and that is, again, why um, I, I really wanted to have, to write this book now, and I'm so grateful to my publisher, um, University of Iowa Press, that they, they timed this so well. They timed the pre-launch of the book, you know, when it first pops up on, you know, Amazon or websites, for the day of the oral argument in this very big Supreme Court case called the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, that's going to be decided. And then we timed the release of the book for, for now, for March, because we know that the Supreme Court's determination in this case, the Dobbs case, is coming down. Um, and so I'm, while I still can, I believe that, that we can have this conversation and the American people can make their will known and to say to, you know, to, their own, to their politicians what we as Americans need to preserve our own health in the health of our, of, our, of our pregnant parents, of our moms, and of our babies. Um, and I know we can do better than this, this, this complete black and white conversation that we've been having of, you know, let's just restrict abortions after six weeks. Um, because, for example, we know that, as you heard with me, I didn't know my pregnancy had gone wrong until eight weeks. I did not know my wanted pregnancy likely would not make it with all of us intact until 21 weeks. And, and I want to so add to that. You said you mentioned are, that you are, had no another baby. You mentioned that you had another baby. If you're nursing your baby, you very often don't even get your period. And so you may not <laughs> even know that you're pregnant. Yeah. No, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's very true. common. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I mean, like it, it, people don't always know they're pregnant. You don't always know. And, but I, I also like to say that, you know, and I, I thought I thought to save this pregnancy until, like, you know, the very, very last moment. I should probably give you the spoiler of the book. But um, yeah, right, give us I the spoiler. Tell this. us. We don't have that much time. We want left. the spoiler. Yeah, we want the spoiler. The spoiler is that nobody, nobody, with the exception of maybe a parasitic triplet, died in the making of this, this pregnancy. Um, ultimately, nobody was aborted. Um, we all, I lived, I'm here, I'm talking to you, the, um, the babies lived, they were born premature, they spent a really long time in the NICU, and then they had for two years afterwards, um, was it daily, every other day, therapies to try to help them, because they were born pretty compromised and very premature. So whereas the American taxpayer picked up uh, what I estimate to be about a million dollars of cost to save that pregnancy, ultimately we were saved, but at a pretty high price. And it's not just the money, as we kind of, as we talked about or alluded to in the beginning of the interview. It's you are in a position to be able to uh, take care of these twins in, in a way that has allowed them to be healthy or healthier, uh, the most vulnerable 
among us don't have that opportunity when they are forced into Absolutely. pregnancies that they can't take care of, not just medically, but in all other ways, financially. They have other children, to, as you keep mentioning, which is really important. They have other children and family to take care of. All of those things uh, make it more than difficult and destroy and actually destroy families. As a social worker, I've seen that happen. Absolutely. And and I, I love how you keep bringing it back to, yes, I have I had great privilege through all, all of this. I have the privilege of living in the United States, living in a very well-resourced area. I have the privilege of my education. I have the privilege of relative wealth. And I have the privilege of race. I'm white. Let us not understate that privilege. For those without those resources and, frankly, without that privilege and finally without the luck that I had, I just came down to luck. Their pregnancy, their situation would have turned out absolutely different than mine. And I keep saying that the outcome of, of pregnancy should not result on privilege, and it certainly shouldn't rely on luck. We should do better, and we should follow the science. So what do you think the response is going to be, or what has the response been to your book? I, 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 you're not the, the first. Um, that I've talked to about this, Catherine, and I hope you won't be the last, and I keep pounding away at this. I was really fortunate to um, win this um, D.C. Uh, Commission on Arts and Humanities Fellowship for this year, and as part of winning that fellowship, I promised to have community conversations around this book and this issue. And so I'm trying to hold up my bargain, and I just keep, um, I, I'm pleading with people now is the time. Now is the time to speak, especially speak to your state politicians about what you want for your families and for, the, and for your health and for the health of the people in your communities. And to ask yourself seriously, are these restrictions on, they call them restrictions on abortion, but really the restrictions on maternal uh, health care, are these the restrictions you want given the repercussions you know that those restrictions will have? And if your answer is no, we don't, we realize how grim life is going to be with these restrictions. How many women are going to die? How many pregnant people are going to suffer and families are going to suffer? Please speak up now while you still can. Let's give people more information about where they can go, you know, a website or websites to continue this conversation, website for your book and other websites that you think would be um, meaningful or helpful to us. Absolutely. So I always like to refer people to independent booksellers and publishers. My publisher is University of Iowa Press, Iowa Press, um, or U Iowa Press rather. On on the web, you can buy my book there. It is also available through, of course, your big box sellers and Amazon. And my own website is my name, GenevieveBradman.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was it was a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, we'll have to have you on again to see how this all plays out. I want to see that, you know. Once... I, would, I would love that, Catherine. I really appreciate this opportunity and the opportunity to speak with your listeners. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 